Hey everybody, welcome to The Briefing Room on this Friday. I'm Devin Dwyer, Washington. Great to have you with us. Political Director Rick Klein is here, White House reporter Jordan Phelps. Uh, and so much to talk about today, from the White House to Capitol Hill and out on the campaign trail. Uh, we're going to start today with the president's uh, embrace uh, of a plan, in, in his view, that would serve up some political retribution to Democrats opposing his immigration policies by dumping uh, detained immigrants in so-called sanctuary cities. Some news breaking on that. We'll also get over to the Pentagon, talk about the transgender ban. Going Going into effect today, uh, and then take a look at this very unusual feud that's uh, unfolding between uh, Democratic presidential candidate Pete Buttigieg uh, and Vice President Mike Pence. So more on that to come. But let's start with the news. The president just a short time ago saying uh, he is still considering a plan that would take detained immigrants at the border and ship them to the interior of the countries uh, in a move to get back at his Democratic opponents. Take a listen. We'll bring the illegal. Really, you call them the illegals. I call them the illegals. They came across the border illegally. We'll bring them to sanctuary city areas and uh, let that particular area take care of it, whether it's a state or whatever it might be. California certainly is always saying, oh, we want more people, and they want more people with their sanctuary cities. Well, we'll give them more people. We can give them a lot. We can give them an unlimited supply. And let's see if they're so happy. They say we have open arms. They're always saying they have open arms. Let's see if they have open arms. Uh, the alternative is to uh, change the laws, and we can do it very, very quickly, very easily. Okay? And Jordan Phelps, you've done reporting on this. When this first broke last night that this had been considered, the next line was that it had been knocked down and that the legal forces inside the administration had turned the president away from this. But uh, he seems to be back embracing this. That's exactly right, Devin. Uh, the White House statement initially was this was an idea that was floated and immediately shot down. No further discussion. Uh, but President Trump had something different to, to say today. Uh, and he says it is under active consideration. This appears to be just the latest in a string of unorthodox orthodox solutions that the president is bringing to his great frustrations yeah, on the southern border. Rick, he said he wanted to go tougher. This seems like one of these strategies he's wanted to uh, give a try. And to me, this is context for, the, for what Kirsten Nielsen was up against and, and the Absolutely. house cleaning that we've seen at, at she DHS. She stood up to him on this. She stood up on this and, and other potentially you know, illegal schemes. It is unprecedented, and as Jordan points out, it is illegal. And I think for people that are watching this today, it's almost certainly not going to happen. It's, this is the president musing, as he does. He was, remember, he was shutting down the border a couple of weeks ago. Right. He says these things. Uh, he gets a rise out of people, and then the chips fall somewhere else, and it isn't actually going to happen. But it is startling to have the White House say, no, we were never thinking about that, and the president to say, you know what, I think that's still a good idea. And part of this so-called strategy uh, from what you've been hearing from White House officials has been to strike back at two, serve two purposes in the administration. One, to do something about all those detained immigrants. They are simply running out of space uh, down at the border, so to, to ship them elsewhere, but also to strike back at those so-called uh, sanctuary cities, which, uh, if you haven't heard the term, those are cities uh, that have tried to limit their cooperation with federal uh, immigration of, uh, enforcement authorities to protect low-priority immigrants in those places. One of those cities uh, is San Jose, California. The mayor of San Jose, California, joins us now on the phone, Sam Licardo. Uh, Mr. Mayor, thank you so much. want to get your reaction to the president's strategy that he now seems to be embracing. Would you take these immigrants, and what do you have to say to him? Well, good afternoon. I well, first, in San Jose and Silicon Valley, we happily welcome any families uh, that are willing to endure such extraordinary hardship and to take such tremendous risk to be part of our great country. 
And in San Jose and Silicon Valley, uh, immigration is a secret sauce of our success. Almost 40% of us were born in a foreign country, and we have the highest per capita income of any major metro area in, in the nation, uh, with the lowest violent crime rates. Uh, we thrive on immigration. And so I don't take this as a threat, but of course, this is really not a solution. This is just silliness. And we need real solutions that include comprehensive immigration reform. You know, in the national debate, Mr. Mayor, that's been playing out on this, and the president has been leaning into over the, th he's been claiming a threat from these immigrants, from undocumented immigrants. There's been debate in your community about uh, a recent uh, death of a San Jose woman, uh, allegedly at the hands of an undocumented immigrant. Do you, um, how do you wrestle with this issue of, of being a sanctuary city and the threats and dangers that this White House seems to be playing up? Well, first, it's important that we distinguish between violent criminals and immigrants. And the 99.9% of people who are coming here who are working hard and raising families are not violent criminals, and we should treat the two differently. Uh, and part of the problem with this debate is that folks on the extremes, on both the right and the left, seem to want to treat everyone the same. And so regardless of what happens here locally and how we address the issue with violent criminals, we're going to continue to be a welcoming community. All right, Mayor, uh, Mayor Sam Licardo of San Jose, California, responding to the president's uh, threat towards sanctuary cities. Mr. Mayor, thank you so much. Uh, Rick, I mean, it's not just California cities, it's Northeast cities. I mean, the president clearly wants to make this into a campaign strategy uh, in places where Democrats may be vulnerable. And, and highlight what is a real policy disagreement here. I mean, these sanctuary cities are, are often uh, willfully violating federal law, or at least the federal guidance around that law, and saying, no, we don't care what the federal law says, we want to treat this differently. It's a policy disagreement, and maybe that's federalism, maybe that's how it's supposed to work. It seems like the president is trying to test that issue, but this is the kind of thing that you can imagine a kind of, you know, right-wing pundit just saying, hey, you know, you want him so bad, go take him. Well, maybe that's a good idea if the president now embraces it. It, it. it can't be seen as serious policy, but it is a threat, and as he said at the end of even the remarks today, maybe you get to a policy solution as a result of this. If you're able to increase the pressure on people like Nancy Pelosi, who represents San Francisco, another, another uh, sanctuary city, uh, then maybe you get a policy solution, but they're not taking it seriously. It may be riling up the base, but the big question, of course, is, is it legal? So many of the president's initiatives on this front have been blocked by the court so far. I want to bring in uh, ABC News contributor and former DHS official John Cohen, who joins us uh, by phone. John, uh, what was your reaction to first uh, hearing about this plan last night when it first broke? Um, and is there any chance that something like this could be legal, even if only to alleviate the masses of immigrants uh, at the border that they're struggling with housing. Yeah, hi guys. Um, so look, if the, if the administration had a comprehensive and serious plan on how they were going to deal with the individuals who were presenting themselves at the border legally seeking asylum, uh, and that included uh, providing temporary housing, transporting them to cities across the country and providing temporary housing while their asylum claims were adjudicated, that would be one thing. But based on the president's own tweets, that's not the purpose here. The purpose uh, is to use U.S. law enforcement resources so that the administration can extract revenge or punish uh, the president's political adversaries. And that's just simply an abuse of authority, and it's not something that a serious 
law enforcement officials would consider doing, and that's why ICE pushed back on this. But if I can correct a little bit of the conversation that was going on earlier about sanctuary cities, because the administration has been very um, has been very uh, aggressive in, quite frankly, mischaracterizing what a sanctuary city is. First, it's important to remember that state and local authorities uh, do not have the legal authority to uh, enforce our nation's immigration law. That is, uh, that is exclusively a federal responsibility. State and local authorities do have the responsibility to protect people living in their communities from crime. And in order to protect their communities from crime, they need people to talk to them. And so these major cities have said that in order for us to carry out our primary responsibility, we are going to de-emphasize the role of local police in check in, in asking people their citizenship status, and they are going to work with immigration authorities to go after violent criminals. Because from the standpoint of a local police department or a local city, if a woman is a, uh, a victim of domestic violence, if she's been assaulted, if a man's been robbed, but they're not going to call the local police because uh, they're scared that their citizenship is going to be questioned, uh, then the entire city suffers. So the so-called sanctuary cities, which really isn't even a term that's defined in the law, are simply cities that make it a priority to address their local, uh, their local law enforcement issues. They will help ICE and immigration authorities when they're dealing with criminal aliens. But they have said that in order for us to achieve our priorities, uh, we are not going to emphasize immigration enforcement, which again is a exclusively a federal responsibility. And certainly that position has made a convenient foil for the president uh, as he uh, begins his 2020 campaign. John Cohen, thanks so much for that perspective and important uh, clarification on what a sanctuary city is. We'll continue to stay on this story. I know, Jordan, you'll be doing more reporting on how they plan to proceed on this over at the White House uh, as we go forward. Uh, shifting gears now to uh, some developments out of the Pentagon today. The president's trans, so-called transgender ban uh, has officially gone into effect today. Uh, this, is a, this is a policy that was two years in the making from those first tweets when President Trump, out of the blue, as you were just saying, Jordan, That's sort right. of caught everybody off guard. Uh, has there been any talk about this at the White House? Are they paying attention to this? Do they want the spotlight on this issue? No, not not really. It's just going into effect today. But I do recall that moment very clearly when the president first sent out that tweet because it caught even his own communications team by surprise. And we've seen this over and over again. But this was kind of early on in the administration when it was still really shocking. <laughs> I remember running up to upper press and finding Anthony Scaramucci, who was there for his short two-week tenure, uh, and he had no idea what I was talking about. Um, and, and Jim Mattis, and, too, at the time, was completely flustered uh, when the tweet came out. <laughs> absolutely. So what we're seeing here here is an example of the administration now catching up to a policy that the president said. Let's go over to the Pentagon. Uh, Elizabeth McLaughlin is our Pentagon reporter who's been following this story for quite some time. Elizabeth, so what actually is happening today uh, with respect to transgender service members already serving or transgender Americans who may want to serve this country? Break it down. Yeah, just as you guys were saying, this is a policy that has been in the works for almost two years now, since when President Trump first tweeted that in July of 2017. So what's happening now is that transgender service members are largely going to be confined to serve in their biological sex. Um, those who may have come out or transitioned prior to today are grandfathered in under the old 2016 policy that was under the Obama administration. And then as for those transgender individuals who may want to join the military going forward, if they've had any hormone therapy or maybe a gender assignment related surgery, they would be automatically barred from joining. 
So in, in essence, as you were telling me earlier, Elizabeth, it's sort of a don't ask, don't tell policy for transgender Americans. Uh, and as we know, 9,000 uh, service members right now currently identify as, uh, as transgender. What is, what is this, uh, what, what is the expectation for how many uh, of those 9,000 will be forced to leave the service because of this new policy? You know, Devin, that's really hard to say. There really aren't estimates right now. Uh, I spoke to one of the lawyers for two of the major legal challenges that came out right after the president announced this ban. There are still four lawsuits moving their way through the courts. And this individual said that in the past month, since they said, hey, the policy is going to take effect on April 12th, that a lot of transgender service members rushed to come out to try to uh, announce to the military that they would possibly like to transition or receive some side of kind of medical treatment uh, to get around the policy and not have to be uh, removed after this policy goes into effect. Uh, the lawyer described a lot of fear and anxiety among the transgender community that is currently serving. And so that's something we're going to watch going forward is will you see a, a lot of folks leaving the service? All right, Elizabeth McLaughlin, thank you so much. want to bring in now a member, active duty member of the United States military, uh, who has uh, been a veteran of the war in Afghanistan, also a graduate of West Point, uh, and is, uh, is, is uh, himself tra herself transgender. Olivia Stelic uh, joins us. Olivia, thank you so much for coming in. want to get your reaction to the, um, to the ban going into effect today uh, and what impact uh, it has on you. So, I mean, it's a it's a pretty rough day for my community. It's something that we have been fighting against and that our allies have been fighting against for quite some time now. Um, as you all have mentioned, it's been two years in the making and we've been trying to, to work against that, really. Um, I think that one of the most, personally, it's going to have relatively, um, I, I will be allowed to stay in the military, right? So some people have said that it won't affect people who are already on active duty and who have come out. But the truth is, that's not true. Um, when you have folks at the top of the chain of command who have essentially said, you don't belong in the military, transgender people are not qualified to serve outside of this one select group that we're just letting stay because they came out at a time when we said they could, it really sets a tone for easy discrimination um, from throughout all the ranks. Uh, for instance, my promotion board is upcoming, and what are the likelihood, what's the chances at this point that I will be considered based on my performance and my merits when I'm a transgender service member, and that'll be clear from my records. Have you ever, we hear so much talk about readiness, military readiness, and concerns from the president uh, that uh, having transgender service members uh, on the front lines and elsewhere sort of harms that readiness. Have you ever personally heard concerns uh, in the chain of command with your superiors about you, about your ability to get the job done and, the, and those around you? Absolutely not. I can say without, without any question, without any shred of doubt, that that has been the furthest thing from the truth. I volunteered to go on this deployment and I was able to deploy. I spent nine months in Afghanistan rotating around to different outposts from the biggest bases to the smallest bases. And not only was I welcome everywhere I went, but I was requested to go to all of these small outposts because they had heard good things about my care. So not only was I ready to deploy, but I increased as a physical therapist, the readiness of almost 2000 service members that I treated while I was in Afghanistan. Had I not been there, that would not have happened. And my leadership has been very clear, both from my immediate supervisor, and really, if you look at the record, all the way up to the to the service chiefs, they testified before Congress that there have been absolutely zero issues 
with readiness, deployability, unit cohesion, morale, any of that. And, and how are you feeling, before we let you go, Olivia, about these court challenges, which, as you said, do continue, uh, even as the ban is going into effect, those court cases are still proceeding. Uh, are you optimistic, personally, that those will succeed and this will be changed, this policy? I think that one day this question will be settled and there will be transgender Americans in the military. I don't know how long that's going to take. I don't know if it's going to be with these court cases or with legislation. But one day we're going to look back on this like we've looked back on every other group of minorities that we have discriminated against. And we're going to say, somehow we got this wrong again, despite all of the past history that we have saying that there's absolutely no valid reason to discriminate against transgender Americans. Olivia Stelic, Army Captain, uh, West Point graduate, veteran of Afghanistan. Uh, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your per important perspective today, Olivia. Thanks. Thank you for having me. All right. Uh, we told you yesterday here about the uh, unprecedented vote taking place just a couple miles from here at uh, Georgetown University on uh, reparations for descendants of slaves. The university students put together a referendum uh, voting to uh, charge themselves $27.20 every semester uh, in symbolic reference and tribute to the 272 slaves that were sold by the university uh, nearly 200 years ago to pay a debt there. Uh, overnight, the students uh, overwhelmingly approved the referendum, 66% to 34%, two-to-one margin. Uh, it's still up to the university whether to embrace that and impose the fee, but the students did send a message to the university, uh, said in a statement recognizing uh, the vote last night that they uh, have acknowledged the students uh, that 3,800 students turned out to vote there uh, and are contributing uh, to the national conversation, though they, they made no commitment uh, to uh, embracing that policy. Rick, this is not just something that's taking place at universities, but a hot topic this year on the campaign trail as well. Yeah, microcosm of the national debate that we've seen emerge, and it's an unexpected one. I, not many people that were looking at the Democratic primary said, you know, you need to have a position on slave reparations. Right. This has not been a front burner issue. It has been, though. It's, it's really emerged as a, as a key one, is part of the discussion about social justice, about racial inequalities. And I think the vote at Georgetown is something the presidential candidates were looking at. And it, and it speaks to the activism among a younger generation of Democratic voters, maybe even Republican voters. What is the stance on this? How do you really get racial justice right? How do you correct inequities? Of course, this kind of payments it doesn't undo history, uh, even if it is endorsed ultimately by Georgetown and this fee goes into effect. But it is a small statement to say we recognize we're in a Justice occurred, and we want to take care of it. And much more on Capitol Hill on that front, too, and pieces of legislation introduced. Shifting gears a little bit, speaking of the campaign trail, 2020 well underway, and a new poll is out uh, from Iowa this week, highlighting the front runners in uh, the race there ahead of the Iowa caucuses. Take a look. Uh, it underscores the rise of a small town mayor from Indiana. There they are. Again, very early. This is just a snapshot, but Joe Biden, Bernie Sanders atop that list. But there he is, Pete Buttigieg, uh, someone who has skyrocketed into that uh, higher company and now uh, is having quite a, a moment taking on the vice president of the United States over issues of faith uh, and politics and homosexuality and had this to say yesterday on Ellen. Take a listen. Uh, I'm not critical of his faith. Uh, I'm critical of bad policies. Uh, I don't have a problem with religion. I'm religious, too. Uh, I have a problem with religion being used as a justification to harm people, and especially in the LGBTQ community. So many people, uh, even today, feel like they don't belong. Uh, you can get fired in so many parts of this country just for who you are. 
And that's got to change. And if the B VP, I'm not interested in feuding with the vice president, but if he wanted to clear this up, he could come out today and say he's changed his mind, that it shouldn't be legal to discriminate against anybody in this country for who they are. That's all. And the vice president shortly thereafter was uh, asked to address those comments uh, by CNN. Here's what he said in response to the mayor. I think Pete's quarrels with the First Amendment. Yes, All of us in this country have the, the right to our religious beliefs. I'm, I'm a Bible-believing Christian. And is that belief that my wife and I are sin? My wife and I are Bible-believing Christians. We cherish our faith. We put our trust in God's word, as do tens of millions of Americans. And I think as he seeks the highest office of the land, as he seeks to be that person that takes the oath of office to uphold the Constitution, he'd do well to reflect on the importance of respecting the freedom of religion of every American. So a lot of politics to discuss here, but also uh, this whole question of faith in the Democratic Party is an important one as well. For that part of the conversation, I want to bring in Amy Sullivan. She's the host uh, of the Impolite podcast, also author of The Party Faithful, How and Why Democrats Are Closing the God Gap, joins us uh, now by Skype. Amy, thanks so much for being here. I want to start with you and ask you um, to get your take on Buttigieg. We heard him talk to Ellen there about being a religious person, what it means to be religiously conservative and a liberal de Democrat. Democrat. He seems to be someone trying to bridge the God gap, as you write about in your book. Yeah, you know, he's really taking it directly to Republicans, which is kind of unprecedented for national Democrats, at least during the primary season. Um, you know, when the vice president describes himself as a Bible-believing Christian, what he leaves out is that tens of millions of Democrats, including Mayor Pete, are Bible-believing Christians as well. But that just hasn't really been uh, the frame that we've used in national politics. And so what's surprising here is while running for the Democratic nomination, Mayor Pete is very out there talking about, I'm religious too, and not being defensive, not saying I'm as religious as the vice president, but saying, in fact, you know, we should be judged uh, by our fruits, by our fruits, you shall know them, is one of the, uh, the lines in scripture. And he's charging that the vice president um, falls short in terms of his faith when you look at uh, the policies that he has supported as part of this administration. And Rick, you astutely observed earlier today that this could be, is really an attempt by Pete Buttigieg to punch up, to draw some of the spotlight and to take on Mike Pence. And I've been surprised that Pence has engaged. Yeah, it, it, it is striking. I mean, there wasn't much known on the national stage about Mayor Pete. He's from Indiana and he's gay. So Mike Pence is kind of a big deal in that world because of what he has said about LGBT Americans and about what his stance on on equal rights, particularly as governor of Indiana. When, when Pete Buttigieg talks about his personal experience growing up in Indiana with leadership like Mike Pence, it means something. But he knew exactly what he was doing. And to me, at least, it shows a political savvy in identifying an issue that he can personally relate to and then in looking to, to find a way to identify it. And you're right. Uh, the vice president uh, seems caught on a, off guard a bit. He seemed almost offended that, uh, that that Mayor Pete would take him on like this. He says he was a friend before. Where is this coming from? Uh, where it's coming from is Mayor Pete trying to make a political point about himself and represent Americans. Well, and even Karen Pence has made the point that she seems to think that Buttigieg is trying to lift his profile here by association. So uh, it's no secret there. The Pence people think this as well. But it makes it an awkward situation for Vice President Pence. We see him have to walk this over and over again when the leader of Ireland comes every year. There's a breakfast at the Vice President's residence 
kids and the leader of Ireland uh, is gay and he brings his partner with him. They're married. Um, and so he has to walk this over and over again and it's just awkward to And certainly his for. responses to, to Mayor Pete is, are the familiar ones that energize the base on the right. But I guess the question uh, back to Amy is, is there really a hunger for Democrats uh, to hear this religiosity and this religious speak from somebody, a candidate running for president at a time when so many younger Americans, liberal Americans are unaffiliated, running away from religion? Yeah, you know, Democrats are in a really interesting position right now because, as you say, the fastest growing segment of the Democratic electorate are Americans who say they have no religious affiliation. But at the same time, people of progressive faith have been at the forefront of so many of the resistance movements, um, from Will Reverend William Barber to Sister Simone Campbell and the nuns on the bus. There has been a visibility to the religious left that was pretty much missing for a couple decades. I, I have to agree with Mayor Pete on that. And in some ways, the credit goes to Donald Trump, because for decades, progressive religious folks have been arguing um, that it's not a matter of who's religious and who's not, but um, what your faith leads you to support. And they've been saying that there's something rotten in the marriage between the religious right and the Republican Party. Um, now everything they've been saying has been kind of put in front of the whole nation uh, because of the ongoing, really very consistent support from uh, the religious right and conservative evangelicals for this president and for the administration, from the travel ban to this family separation policy and everything in between. And, and Rick, uh, finally on this, the, the politics of faith and uh, religious language sort of resonate in Iowa more than some places on the coast, obviously, particularly in Democratic circles. I mean, do you think that that gives Buttigieg something of a leg up, that he's wearing this on his sleeve and talking the way he is uh, in that particular first-in-the-country vote? It is key to the appeal of Pete Buttigieg that he hails from the middle of the country, that he's a small-town mayor from Indiana. That matters. A state that's pretty red. A state that's very close to Iowa, by the way. And, and yes, th there are a lot of Iowa Democrats who are deeply religious, and they, they may be offended by aspects of the, of, the, of the Trump administration, maybe up to including Mike Pence. That doesn't make them irreligious or anti-religion in politics. So I think some, a way to marry those views and talk about your own faith in that way as animating your own life and important to your own experience is a very important thing and key to the appeal of this, uh, of this man who's having Having a phenomenal moment. He's going to be a, a, formally launching his candidacy, we believe, just this weekend in South Bend, Indiana. He isn't even actually a candidate yet, and he has had a heck of a first couple of months. And raised a lot of money as well. Right. So our thanks to Amy Sullivan, uh, again, host of Impolite Podcast and author of The Party Faithful. Thanks, Amy, for joining us. And Rick, thanks for your smart analysis there. We'll close you today uh, and end the week here uh, in the briefing room with a look at a different sort of 2020 primary. Uh, this one that's getting some buzz online, and it has to do with animals. Uh, for the first time in over over 100 years, this White House, just a short few blocks from here, does not have a first pet. Uh, we noticed something that a number of Democrats are trying to highlight in running for the, <laughs> the party's nomination. They're dogs. Uh, and we see a bunch of those animals here. We saw them. there was Mayor Pete with his uh, first pet. Uh, some of these pictures are quite cute. Joe Biden with his big German shepherd. 
Uh, so I don't know. I guess if you're not a dog lover, maybe this is a turnoff. I don't know. Anyone have cats? Do we have any cats? I in haven't the seen any field? cats on Instagram. This, this is a dog country, but I think it's interesting <laughs> there that Biden has a German Shepherd, which uh, Trump has said, you know, if he were to get a dog, there's nothing better than a German Shepherd. Yeah. So maybe that's a little hint there. And he's, he's loved showing that off to visitors at the vice <laughs> sure president's has. house. My he kids, sure my kids got to meet the dog, so that was very exciting for them when they, like when they were the there. Years ago. All right, so there it is, the dog primary for 2020. <laughs> We'll keep our eye uh, on that as well. Thank you for joining us here in the briefing room on this Friday. I'm Devin Dwyer. Great to have Rick Klein with us, Jordan Phelps, as always, the whole team. We'll be here 24-7 uh, all weekend and into next week. We're awaiting the Mueller report's release, the 400-page redacted report. We'll have coverage for that uh, when it comes down. Hope you have a great weekend. Join us back here at 3.30 uh, on Monday. See you then. Hi everyone, George Stephanopoulos here. Thanks for checking out the ABC News YouTube channel. If you'd like to get more videos, show highlights, and watch live event coverage, click on the right over here to subscribe to our channel. And don't forget to download the ABC News app for breaking news alerts. Thanks for watching.